Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Andy Norman. Andy is a philosopher. He's the director of the Humanism Initiative at Carnegie Mellon University, and he's the founder of Circe, the Cognitive Immunology Center. In this episode, we discuss his new book, Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. We talk about how bad ideas operate like parasites. We talk about the notion of a mental immune system. We talk about the virtues and dangers of being open-minded. We discuss Richard Dawkins' notion of selfish genes and his coinage of the word meme. We talk about conspiracy theories. We talk about whether you should seek out disagreements with your friends and family or whether you should simply keep the peace. We talk about policies like stop and frisk and how to weigh lives saved against more abstract moral gains. We talk about what makes good ideas good and bad ideas bad. We talk about the Milgram experiment and the Stanford prison experiment. We talk about cultures of cheating and cultures of honesty in different sports and much more. So without further ado, Andy Norman. Okay, Andy Norman, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thank you, Coleman. Nice to be here. So before we get started talking about your book, can you give my audience a sense of who you are, how you came to be interested in philosophy and in the kind of philosophy that you're interested in? Sure. So you and I share the trait of being a a philosophy major, I understand. Yes. Uh, So when I went to college way back in the dark ages, I was figured I'd study physics and then took a philosophy of science class and realized that there were all kinds of foundational questions about science and how it works that I didn't have the answers to. And so I was kind of drawn into philosophy that way. And so for about almost 40 years now, I've been thinking about how we can reason together better. And even though I was interested in this long before public discourse in America plummeted precipitously into (laughs) almost caricature territory, I've been sort of thinking about how divisive ideologies hijack minds and turn us into poor citizens. And I've been thinking about ways we can improve our thinking so that we can become wiser versions of ourselves. So the book you mentioned that just came out a few months ago is my attempt to put a lot of those, connect a lot of the dots and show people that there's a way out of this post-truth morass that we've created. So your book, it operates with a central concept. I'd call it an, an analogy, but it's actually, you, you argue it's, it's more than an, an analogy or a metaphor. It's actually right. a real, you know, something that actually exists in the mind. And this is the notion that the, the mind has an immune system and that bad ideas are essentially like viruses and 
mind viruses. Right. In a way. Yeah. So, and everything that applies to the immune system in the body, you know, the ways that it fights diseases, the flaws in the ways that it fights diseases and how diseases circumvent normal immune systems and how certain people have stronger immune systems than others. All of these basic facts about the immune system more or less apply to the mind's immune system. So that's the thread running through the book. So can you talk about... Summarize that beautifully. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I didn't mean to, to steal it from you, the opportunity to summarize your own book. But. No, it's quite all right. Nicely done. So what do you think this idea of the mind's immune system adds to ideas that the audience will be familiar with, like reason and critical thinking and science and skepticism and so forth? Yeah. Uh, so I'm a big fan of critical thinking and I've been teaching it for about 30 years. And what I've learned is that the concept of critical thinking is, is kind of a black box. It's a very vague term for being a little bit more skeptical about stuff, asking more questions, and, and maybe examining arguments more carefully. The problem is that those bits of advice don't get you very far. For, and, and one way to illustrate this is to look at the way flat earthers think. You might think that flat earthers are uncritical thinkers, but it turns out that their minds behave in are hypercritical in certain ways. They are much more skeptical than you and I about some things that are common sense. So it's not that we're more critical than them. It's that they're critical about things that don't deserve to be questioned. They question things that, that oughtn't properly to be questioned. And a healthy mental immune system raises questions where questions are objectively, where they objectively arise, but don't when they don't. So the way to take critical thinking instruction and critical thinking itself to the next level is to understand how the mind's idea filters work, why they so often fail, and how we can make them work better. And it turns out that the, the analogy with the body's immune system is remarkably robust, and it draws our attention to all kinds of ways that we can take critical thinking to another level. So I argue that the next generation of, of critical thinking instruction certainly will probably grow out of this new science uh, I call cognitive immunology, which is basically the science of mental immunity. Yeah, there is um, the, the flat earther point brings up a, a kind of paradox around open mindedness and skepticism, which is that. I think everyone would recognize that being open-minded is in general a virtue, but like anything, like any virtue, it can be taken too far. And part of, um, I, I guess I, I would say part of having a, a good mental immune system, which is to say good habits of mind that deter you from believing bad ideas is to know when to be open-minded and about what to be open-minded and so, so, so as to not waste 10 years of your life believing flat earth and then eventually coming out of it when you could have had the intuition that there's, there's really, there's no there there to begin with. So it's, it's about, that's a kind of judgment call that's tough to make. Yeah, I, I think um, 
So I argue that in the same way that the body's immune system can overreact to a perceived threat and attack, actually attack the body's own tissues. So biologists call that autoimmunity. So when the body's immune system overreacts and attacks the wrong things, that's, that's called an autoimmune disorder. Turns out they're autoimmune disorders of the mind. Doubts and questions are the antibodies of the mind. And if you, your mind generates them in the wrong places, gets you to engage in extreme, all corrosive kinds of skeptical questioning, that actually represents an autoimmune disorder. So true, healthy thinking modulates the use of questions and doubts properly, neither too skeptical nor too trusting. And striking that balance can be quite tricky. But once you see how mental immune systems work, it gets much easier to see how to uh, walk that tightrope. So let's cover some basics of your thesis here. Why isn't it a mere metaphor that the mind has an immune system, just a useful kind of uh, analogy? Well, I think it's, it's not that it's wrong to call it an analogy, but I think that if you look at the history of science, you see that time and again, useful metaphors start to draw people's attention to things they hadn't seen before. And then the, and the word usages endorsed by the metaphor can actually solidify into something literal. So metaphorical uses transform over time into literal ones if they prove sufficiently useful. I'll give you an example. Back in 1976, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins proposed the concept of a meme a bundle of information or a behavior that can be replicated by human beings and spread through a culture. When people first came across that word, you know, well, Dawkins himself said, this is just an analogy with the gene, but transported into the cultural space. And so other people were like, yeah, but don't take that too seriously. It's just an analogy. And then the term meme became so useful that people stopped dropping the scare quotes the, and, and we no longer think of memes as, un, we now think of memes as real things, entities that can flourish and spread across the internet. And it was the use of a new metaphor that allowed us to see the relevant patterns there um, and better understand how information and disinformation spread. And I'm arguing that the exact same transformation is is in the process of happening with the concept of, of a mind's immune system. It's morphing from metaphorical to literal right before our eyes. And, and one argument you make in that vein in the book is that certain ideas like parasites use up their hosts, but spread in the process, like, like suicide bombing to get into paradise, for instance. Right. So th th this is an idea that creeps some people out and strikes many as, as a metaphor at best. But I argue in the book that bad ideas actually are literally mind parasites. And I make a case for it of roughly this shape. Parasites require a host. Ideas require a host. Parasites can infect a host and induce it to spread it to other hosts by, say, inducing a sneak the infected person to sneeze the virus so that others breathe it. 
And bad ideas can infect the mind and get that mind to spread it to other minds. So when a, a sexy meme comes across your Facebook feed and you click share, that meme has actually induced you to share it. You have served its reproductive, I'll use scare quotes with that, its reproductive interests. And so, and if you study, the, there's a new field called information epidemiology, and it basically says all of the basic principles of epidemiology apply to the way in which ideas and information spread. And if we want to understand this hyper-connected world we've built on top of information technology, we need to advance the science of information epidemiology. And I want to add to that. We also need to understand how healthy minds fight off bad ideas so that we can share the secrets of healthy thinking, of, of uh, mental immunity with everyone and empower everyone to resist their allure. So with the idea of memes and, and genes, as many people will be familiar with, Dawkins helped a lot of people understand the basics of evolution by centering it on, on the gene's eye point of view and imagining the gene as a kind of agent. Even though we know it's not an agent, it's, it's very useful to think of it as a selfish agent trying to help copies of itself, whether in the host in it that, that it's inside of or, or in another organism. You put that very delicately and, and I think in, in exactly the right way. So nobody thinks that genes have intelligence or that genes scheme consciously about how to spread themselves. And yet when virologists, sorry, nobody says those things about viruses, but if you uh, ask a virologist to, to describe the behavior of a virus, they'll often use language that suggests that there's a weird kind of unconscious agency at work there in how viruses spread. So the language of that suggests agency actually turns out to be the right language to describe the way viruses spread. And I argue in the book that the same agency suggesting language is the right way to describe the spread of, for example, I don't know, seductive ideologies or the kind of conspiracy theories that basically just hijack minds and spread to other minds. Think about the spread of QAnon belief in America over in recent months. It's been an astonishingly successful meme. And we have a detailed account of how QAnon belief spread. Again, if your listeners aren't familiar with QAnon is the conspiracy theory that says a cabal of Satan worshiping pedophiles runs our nation. This idea speaks to people who are frustrated with the system quite independently of the idea's truth. I mean, the idea is not true, but it's very seductive, so it spreads. And people who are sucked in or sucked down the, the QAnon rabbit hole often end up unable to think clearly about other issues. And they often end up alienated from their own families and friends and coworkers because their thinking has become so extreme. So this is an idea that doesn't serve anyone well even though it masquerades as a true and liberating idea. Big news and shoes. 
Rothy's is now selling men's sneakers and men's driving loafers. Even more big news. They just launched premium merino wool shoes for fall. Merino wool is nature's perfect material. Soft, comfortable, machine washable, and sustainable. Available in cool colors and classic styles you'll want to wear everywhere. Looking good and feeling great just got easier. Unbeatable comfort, classic styles, easy to clean, sustainable. Rothy's men's shoes check every box. Don't you hate it when your white sneakers get dirty? Rothy's innovative washable construction keeps your shoes looking like new with every wash. If that wasn't enough, Rothy's just launched their first ever collection of accessories for men. Wallets, carry bags, card cases. Rothy's has all your everyday carry essentials. No more worrying about keeping your wallet clean after weeks of wear. Rothy's wallets are fully machine washable too. Rothy's offers an elevated style that's better for the planet, all thanks to their innovative processes and materials. Rothy's men's shoes are made from 100% recycled materials, even the laces. No wonder Rothy's best-selling men's shoe, the driving loafer in navy, gets a five-star review from almost every customer. Forbes calls Rothy's men's shoes a travel must-have, and Esquire says, pick up a pair of Rothy's men's shoes before they sell out. To help you welcome the fall season in style, Rothy's is doing something special. That's right, they gave me the chance to share this super rare opportunity with my listeners for a limited time. So right now, you can get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash Coleman. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash Coleman. So head to rothys.com slash Coleman to find your new favorites today. So there's always been, it's always been one aspect of the analogy between genes and memes that was, that seemed to me misleading, which is with evolution by natural selection, you're starting with this puzzle, which is that everything looks designed. Mm. Yet there's no designer. And into that gap comes the theory of evolution, explaining why it looks like everything is designed mm. without conscious intent. But with memes, with ideas, you know, these, we know there's a designer of ideas because we design them. We think about, you know, how long did Kant spend, spend coming up with what we call deontology? It's like, it's, it's a design to be as plausible to him and others as possible. And so it's in, the, in that sense, it's non-random. Genetic mutations are random and then and, and become the new norm if, if they confer an advantage. But ideas are very intentionally placed there. That, that, that's a really nice point. And I think that you've succeeded in showing that, that at some point the analogy has to break down. Like, um, like all analogies. Like all analogies, right. But I don't think that undermines my argument. And let me see if I can explain why. Um, I do think that cultural evolution is a mix of non-random, intentional, deliberately designed innovations, right? So when somebody invents a new machine and adds it to a culture, that's a very intentional form of cultural evolution, right? But it's also true that some ideas just kind of seem to spread on according to a logic all their own. And, and I'll just use the example of QAnon belief again. Um, it turns out no one person is responsible for spreading QAnon belief. It's this weird thing that manages to catch people's fancy, induce them to go down conspiracy holes, rabbit holes, and then 
spew information variations on this on the same theme online. And then other people pick up those variations and the variations. So, so I'm, I'm reading a book now about how QAnon belief has actually evolved over time, quite apart from any one person's intentional. I mean, different people with intentions played a role in it. But the overall picture is one of ideas that spread in part despite human interests. In fact, and, and we all know that there are ideas that frustrate human interests. I mean, that, that's an uncontroversial point. And when that happens, we need to somehow explain that. So sometimes ideas replicate and spread and go against the best interests of their host. And again, the, I think you mentioned before that the idea that you should become a suicide bomber. And if you do, Allah will reward your, your efforts. That idea can destroy the mind that harbors it. it. Certainly doesn't serve the interests of the person who believes it. Right. And, and currently the idea of that, that you should not get vaccinated if you're a you're sort of typical adult, I would categorize as another harmful, but very seductive idea. I think that's an excellent example. That's right. There are many people out there who are dying because they don't know how to assess the uh, the merits of the COVID vaccine, that don't have accurate beliefs about the COVID vaccine, are therefore turning their back on a remarkable health intervention, and some of them are dying. So I mean, let me ask you, Coleman, if you're tempted to, so let's take the example of somebody who buys into vaccine denial beliefs because he or she has encountered them online refuses to take the vaccine and ends up dying of covid seems to me that that person was infected by a mind virus first and then a a body virus later and that the combination ended up ended up being lethal would you go along with that characterization it's compelling it's compelling when you put it that way and i i think this framework is is useful because especially because there it's so clear that there's individual variation from person to person in your likelihood to adopt bad ideas. This is a, there are people that have consistent throughout their lives, bad habits of mind that lead them to think crazy things in their twenties, a different set of crazy things in their thirties, you know, all the throughout their whole lives. And then there are other people that are just temperamentally and, and mentally just have all of the knobs turned really in the other direction towards never getting too far into a bad idea before the their habits of mind kick in and yeah and a big part of it is is the social circles you inhabit so if i was hanging out with a lot of conspiracy theorists and a lot of them were my friends i'm sure i would find those conspiracy theories far more tempting than I do. I happen to hang out with a lot of people whose day jobs are to, are to investigate. Um, I, I mean, I'm a philosopher by training. I'm a cognitive scientist. And the researchers I hang out with, we're actually paid, trained and then paid to evaluate ideas and test them for reliability. I'm, I'm sure there's the, some reverse causation there too. 
It's like the, the type of person you are has caused you to seek out similar minded people. I imagine there's a story there, a valid story there as well. Yes. I, I guess um, it's hard not to feel angry at people who are refusing to take the COVID vaccine because not only are they endangering themselves, they endanger others, right? If you contract the COVID, the coronavirus, spread it to somebody else who dies, you are in part responsible for that person's death. So, so it's hard not to get angry, but it turns out that when you confront someone angrily, their mental immune system goes into defense mode. Their mind starts to get really defensive and pushes back against the reasons and arguments you're presenting. So it's really important not to demonize or to caricature or uh, demean people who believe different things. You have to meet them in dialogue with an attitude of respect if you have, want to have any hope that they will hear your reasons and learn from them. Yeah, it, it seems in your book, correct me if I'm drawing the wrong lesson, but coming away from reading the book, it seems like you are really encouraging people to, to not simply live and let live with the people around you and the disagreements you have with them insofar as you care about them. And so, you know, if you're talking about friends and family here, you have a disagreement about whether it's a good idea to take the vaccine with your brother or your sister. The upshot of your book is not to just artfully steer the conversation in a different direction. It's to address it head on in a way that is you know, unafraid to call a bad idea a bad idea, but to somehow have this conversation in a way that, that is productive. And so, so that's such a good ideal, but is there, is there not also a wisdom to just kind of letting things go and letting people believe things in order to preserve a relationship, especially if you feel that it's unlikely that because it really takes two to tango. It takes two to have a rational conversation like that. And if you feel it's not possible, is there not a wisdom to just, you know, yes. the old thing of don't talk about religion and politics at the dinner table kind of a thing. <laughs> I'm sort of torn between those two because I totally agree. We, we have a responsibility to take these conversations seriously and to, to understand that you can't, you shouldn't just live your life with your ideas sequestered in your own head and, but, but I also see the wisdom in not raising things that are likely to create discord. Yeah. And I mean, there are many times when I decide that challenging somebody else's idea or questioning somebody's ideas is not, this is not the right moment to do that. There are many times when I am willing to let somebody persist in, in a belief that I think is wrong because in some ways, patience and tolerance and we do have to kind of agree to disagree sometimes to keep, otherwise there, there are too many battles to fight. So, so there, there's, I, I, I endorse your sense that there's wisdom in that. At the same time, I think our culture as a whole has bought into the idea that everyone is entitled to their opinion and we should just let sleeping dogs lie, let, let everybody believe what they want. It's, it's purely a private matter. Well, that turns out to be, remarkably bad advice because beliefs have implications for the way we behave and the wrong beliefs 
can result in behavior that harms others. So even though belief has to achieve outward expression to harm others, psychologists and cognitive scientists say that belief is actually like action in potential. So if you believe something strongly enough, you'll, you'll act in ways that accord with that belief um, when push comes to shove. So it's important that we believe responsibly. It's very easy to believe things that are comforting, but false or harmful, and fob off the costs of that comforting belief on others. And, and I don't think that's, it's becoming obvious, I think, here in the information age, that the ideology that says everyone is entitled to believe whatever they want is hugely dysfunctional. It lets worldviews drift so far apart that we end up being unable to have constructive conversations anymore. We have to build conversational bridges, dialogical bridges between worldviews, and we need to be willing to modify our worldviews so that they remain in touch, A, with reality, and B, so that they remain able to, so that we can coexist with, other, with others who, who believe different things. So let's talk about your, your definition of good ideas versus bad ideas. I thought this was a, a nice part of the book. Mm-hmm. How, how do you, because this is a central idea, the idea is that bad ideas are like viruses. And so you have to have some kind of a definition of what a bad idea is. So how do you define that? Yeah, that is a, a foundational question for my project. So you're, you're absolutely right to ask it. I think what I want to say here, well, this is a couple of things. Number one is we need to let go of the idea that the goodness or badness of an idea is purely in the eyes of the beholder. So, so there's a very seductive view out there that says, who's to say which ideas are good and which ideas are bad? And my answer to that is we are to say, in fact, we have to take responsibility for sorting the ideas that are genuinely beneficial from the ideas that are genuinely harmful, the ideas that are genuinely true from the ideas that only appear to be true. If we fob off the responsibility for sifting good ideas and bad ideas apart, we end up passing on confused and confusing belief systems to our children and our grandchildren. And we need to stop passing the buck down the generations and realize that it's up to us to figure out which ideas are good and which ideas are bad. And I think the ways we have of doing that, there's no, there's no secret to this. We all understand that truth is a good quality in an idea and falsehood is a bad quality. We all understand that being well-evidenced is a good quality and being poorly evidenced is a bad quality. We all understand that if an idea inspires and helps people and makes them behave uh, in pro-social or cooperative ways, that that that's, tends to be a good thing. And that when ideas make us hateful and angry, say the ideas of white supremacist ideology, that those are very bad ideas that are best removed from our belief systems. So the way to make progress on this on this issue is to realize that there are perfectly unproblematic examples that show us that ideas are objectively beneficial or harmful, objectively true or false, and then fight back the urge to punt on the hard, harder questions. So the question of 
exactly what form America's immigration policy should take? That's a really hard question. And it's really hard to sort out exactly what the right, what the best immigration policy is. And I don't know. I'd have to spend decades educating myself in order to figure out the difference between good ideas and bad ideas there. But, but there's no reason why we should just give up in advance. We have to have those hard conversations. We have to drill down into those issues and sort out the good, the good and the bad qualities of these ideas and apply our best idea testing techniques so that the good ones rise to the top and the bad ones fade away. Yeah. So that's another example where it's a sentiment that I so agree with and struggle to actually see how it, how it happens in real life with tough questions where there are, there is, there are several dimensions of well-being weighed against each other. And it's, it's not obvious what the conversion rate is. A policy like stop and frisk, which no doubt recovered lots of guns off the street and you can make an argument it saved X number of lives, you know, just, or, or as a thought experiment and, you know, you could posit that this is true. And then on the other side of the ledger line, just created thousands and thousands of young people that hated the police, were mistreated by the police Mm-hmm. Um, had just rude experiences with the police and the psychology of being a feeling falsely accused. Right. And, you know, I think m- most people would admit that lives saved. I think most philosophers b- by this time would admit that that lives saved is not the only metric mm-hmm. even to a consequentialist that that should matter. But it's in practice, it's very difficult to see how even a community of very smart, informed people could weigh the costs and benefits in a way that was truly scientific. Right. Uh, So you're quite right that trade-offs can become really difficult. When we're talking about issues in politics, law, ethics, and religion, these are the issues where the costs and benefits of our beliefs become really hard to trace and very complex. But that doesn't mean we should throw up our hands and just give up, right? It means we have to redouble our efforts and come at the problem with the best tools we have. Um, I do think that a variation on the scientific mode of thinking is the right way to sort through these issues. And philosophers for a long time have said, just as we can use the best methods of sorting out truth from falsehood, when it comes to factual domains, we, we, have, we also have some powerful tools for separate, separating out better and worse ideas in the moral and political domain. If you engage in that kind of idea testing, say ethical inquiry with others with, who have different points of view, you start to get a feel, a much better over time, you develop a more and more robust sense of which positions are unstable and indefensible and which positions really merit a second look, right? So in the same way that a chess grandmaster can get a feel for which moves are worth thinking about, somebody who practices the art of having difficult conversations can become, develop a much better sense of which positions are worth taking seriously and which ones aren't. Right. And those difficult conversations get easier the more you practice them. Right. 
And, and it's probably also true that some people just have a baseline, better set of intuitions to begin with about these things than others. Like, like the inclination to be good at chess. It's not that, you know, everyone starts as a beginner, but Magnus Carlsen clearly had the ingredients to be much better than most people when he started. Right. Yeah. I, I'm sure that people vary in their knack or ability to do this kind of idea testing. Not everybody is equally is fated to be equally good at it. I hate to write off anybody because I think we can all grow along this key dimension and become better versions of ourselves. We don't have to compete with Magnus Carlsen at chess to enjoy chess or even to become a good chess player. And you don't have to compete with Immanuel Kant to become uh, wiser about ethics. All you have to do is become better than a little bit wiser than you were yesterday. And I think each of us takes that humble approach to getting just a little bit better at thinking these things through every day. We can go, we can become so much, we, we can transform political discourse in this country from utterly dysfunctional to highly illuminating and beneficial if we just take the right attitude and stick with it and not lose our patience. Yeah. So another element here, which you, which you alluded to, you know, this notion that who, who am I to judge what's a good idea or a bad idea? This is close to the philosophical face of that attitude is postmodernism and relativity. Mm -hmm. And the way that set of ideas has been around for, for a long time, but it's also manifested recently in the notion of critical race theory, which is any, the notion of objectivity or perfectionism or reason are thought by critical race theorists to be white values or manifestations of whiteness and uh, therefore not universally valid values that we should all aspire to and argue for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it seems to me your, your, your thesis and, and recommendations here, they presuppose the possibility of objective truths. None of, none of what you're saying is possible if there's no such thing as objectively true. And um, I think it's just, we, this is something I agree with. And with the caveat that no one of us is ever going to be smart enough to attain objective truth, right? But there's all the difference in the world between saying no one in practice will arrive there and there is no place to arrive. Yeah. I think it's really important that we hang on to objectivity as an ideal. So something to strive towards, even though no one of us will ever become perfectly objective. So, I I mean, I do think sometimes we overstate the case. I would argue that it's an objective truth that I have five fingers on this hand. I'm holding up a hand here for those who are just listening, just listening. Um, And anybody who has the modicum of idea testing capacity can validate that for themselves. And that's pretty straightforward case of a, of an objectively true claim. Now, look, I'm not claiming that, that uh, my attitudes about race are somehow objectively pure. I, I don't begin to think would, I wouldn't, wouldn't begin to go there because I, I know the issue is much more complex than I've had time to think through. I know I've got a ton to learn about critical race theory and, and about race more generally and how to bring about justice in a 
in an unjust society. But I don't think I have a whole lot to learn about how many fingers I have this, on this hand. I, I think that view is going to, my view that there are five of them is going to remain stable and it's, that's going to continue to withstand scrutiny for a very, very long time. Unless somebody takes shears to my, to my hand. Yeah. But yeah, d- doesn't it also have to be true that more abstract political ideas lie somewhere along the goodness, badness continuum? Whether we can actually figure out where they lie is, is a separate question. It's beautifully put, Coleman. I really like what you said. What you said there, I think, is, is, is of profound importance. Mm-hmm. To say that there is a fact of the matter as to whether stop and frisk is a just policy. I mean, look, it, is a, it, it could be a complicated thing to figure out whether that, in the end, is a good policy, stop and frisk. I actually think that the evidence on this is, is pretty definitive, that it's a bad policy. But to say that is not to insist that, that you already have the final word on this subject and that you're therefore closing your ears and your mind. Right? To, to say that there, is a, that there are truths to be known about the right way to police people is an invitation to inquire more deeply and improve our policing practices. If you just take the subjectivist or postmodern view that, oh, who's to say which policing practices are better than any others, then you have no basis for criticizing existing policing practices or for arguing for improvement. So so I think that the constructive dialogue and inquiry depend upon a concept of, of truth and the idea that we can approach it more closely with patience and diligent inquiry. Yeah. So, so another thing I just want to come back to that I thought was really interesting is the idea that an idea can be good along one dimension and, and bad along another, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's not that there is a just like an, a neat bin into which you can sort good and bad ideas. There's goodness and badness continuum continuums and several of them. So an idea can be true, but have a negative psychological effect on the believer and vice versa. That's right. And, and um, that's something that's not talked about often, I think in philosophy circles or psychology circles for that matter. I think we want it to be true that every true idea must also have pro-social effects on the person, but that would be a, a bit of a strange coincidence. Yeah, nicely put. And the way I put it in the book is that beliefs stand in ev- relationships to various things that might constitute evidence for them, but the beliefs also affect attitudes and behaviors downstream of the belief. So there's upstream evidence beliefs themselves, and then the downstream consequences on our feelings, on our relationships, on our behavior. Um, And I think the goodness or badness of an idea is a function both of upstream evidence and downstream consequences. So one example of this, take the idea that, you know, God will provide. I think this idea has done a great deal to give people hope. It's an idea that helps people who are down on their luck or facing injustice, deal with a really tough world. And 
it's very hard to mount a decent evidential case that God will always provide for us because we have young people dying of cancer every day, right? So what do you say about an, a, a belief like that? It's both psychologically beneficial and very hard to justify in anything like a scientific way. What do you do in a case situation like that? Right. Um, so I'm advocating for a, a form of idea testing that is sensitive both to upstream and downstream, both to logical and causal relationships. Right. Or, or just the idea that you, um, that you should default to assuming people have good intentions in any gray area. Like you should assume the best in people in your life, even though you know some amount of the time their intentions were, had to have been bad. It is actually, it's, it's damaging to you to assume the worst intentions. That's a beautiful example. Uh, yeah, I, I find, and I think there's a good bit of psychology research on this now, that hopeful, trusting attitudes, attitudes where you expect the best from people tend, first of all, they're healthier for you, and they tend to bring up uh, the good qualities in others. If, if you trust me, I'm more likely to want to live up to that trust and, mm -hmm. and be trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So you can induce a fair amount of trustworthiness just by assuming that somebody will be trustworthy. Um, and arguably, that was one of the great insights of Jesus of Nazareth, right? That there's, there's real religious wisdom in his, in his idea to, of love your enemies, that that's, that's a strategy that can actually change people in profound ways. And when we adopt a cynical view of human nature and assume that everybody's just scheming and out to get us, we tend to become sour and bitter and untrusting and our relationships suffer. And our lives tend to be diminished as a result. So I think the idea that human beings are fundamentally, or, or for the most part, worth trusting, and that it, or it's at very least a good rule of thumb to give people the benefit of the doubt until they violated your trust. Right. I think that's a very good rule of thumb for practical downstream reasons, as well as for upstream evidential reasons. There's now an interesting set of scientific findings about human nature that suggests human beings are far more cooperative than many political philosophies have suggested. Oh, interesting. So what does that kind of evidence look like? So there, a, a wonderful book to read about this is by a Dutch historian named Rutger Bregman. It's called Humankind. Uh, and in it, he actually shows that, for example, the, you know, the Stanford prison experiments where, where uh, test subjects thought they were shocking, pe giving people lethal doses of electric shocks, and they seemed to continue doing it, even though they seemed to be causing people pain. This, this was a, a study that made, has ended up in every psychology textbook because it reinforced our ideas that human beings will obey orders and carry out awful policies. Because this study came out in the immediate aftermath of World War II and human beings, and we needed a way to make sense of that. Turns out, if you go back to the data, that much of the data in that study was was faked and many of the test subjects who agreed to keep pushing the 
limits of pushing the voltages up, they knew it was all a sham. And they did it because they were just playing along. Yeah. Does that make sense? I, I didn't explain that very well, but. was it, So are you, you're thinking of the Milgram experiment, right? Thank you. That's, Milgram, that's the word. Yeah. That's the word I was the, the Stanford prison experiment was similar punchline. You're quite correct. I conflated yeah. the two. Um, um, they were, and Breg, Bregman addresses both of them. And I should have kept them separate. You're correct about that. But uh, he has an, a similar story to tell about each of those. Yeah. So the, the idea of that is, I guess it's, it's not true that you can turn anyone into a consciousless animal by, you know, giving them orders and so forth. It's, it's much harder than we, than those studies led us to think. Right. It may be possible, but it, it probably requires you know, a whole community, a whole government, a whole country, a whole set of social incentives coming down on average people to make them behave like evil people. And another aspect of Bregman's story helps to illustrate this. Turns out that a remarkable, somebody did a study of whether soldiers in World War I were actually shooting to kill on the other side or whether they were deliberately missing because they didn't want to take lives on the other side of the trenches. And it turns out that a, a vast majority, a, a huge, shockingly high percentage of soldiers did not want to kill people on the other side. When this study came out, militaries all over the world said, wait a second, you know, we thought we were training our soldiers to, to shoot to kill. And it turns out many of them are just saying no and just firing high or shooting into the dirt. So since then, the U.S. military has become much more effective at teaching U.S. soldiers how to shoot to kill. And incidents of post-traumatic stress have skyrocketed since. So what the idea is because... Uh, soldiers are now better trained to shoot to kill. They are more likely to experience the the after effects of having killed someone. Right, and which and and the fact that that we experience that as traumatic suggests that there's something fundamentally decent about us that you have to override to create a good soldier. That does not surprise me. I mean, at the extremes of cruelty, of you know. Situations where murder is normalized, which is what war is. It's just, it's, a, it's just a special circumstance where normal, otherwise normal men are taught to murder. It's just to do something that would just completely separate you from normal society in any other context. And there are, um, turn, turn, I'm sorry. Oh, well, uh, so, so I was just going to say, so there's situations like that and the Milgram experiment and, and so forth, which is like which demonstrate that we're not that bad. But then on the, on the other side of the evidence ledger, there's just the constant evidence of self-absorption and cheating. So like so going back to the example of chess, for instance, I'm, I'm a, a huge chess fan. Mm. Mm -hmm. The amount of cheating that occurs in online chess boggles the mind. And the, and the, the amount of work that these servers like chess.com and Lee chess have to do in order to detect and deter cheating. It's just a constant battle because people, there are just, there's a contingent of people and it's not 1% of people, you know, it's, it's more than that mm -hmm. who just 
want to win so badly by any means necessary that they're willing to have no integrity. And this is true in every walk of life. And it's more or less true for, you know, it's like some people are totally captured by this. Other people are mostly good and only occasionally captured by this. Right. And so there's that aspect of, of human nature too. I, you're, you're, you're not wrong. That, so I think from my understanding is that there's a very small fraction of the pop, of the populace that is almost basically sociopaths who genuinely just don't care and who will cheat and lie just abandoned without any qualms of, or conscience. And then there's a much bigger fraction of people who will bend the rules in order to succeed at something. Online chess, a sport, whatever. And yeah, so I, I don't want to pr- suggest that, you know, human beings are just uniformly trustworthy. That, that's not probably not the message to, to take here. And your chess example is a good one. I do have a, an example of a countermeasure, which is really neat. Um, I'm a big fan of the sport of ultimate Frisbee. And ultimate was invented back in the 1960s by a bunch of hippies who thought that, you know, we, we, we don't need no referees, dude. We'll just call everything on the honor system. So it was actually written into the very rules of ultimate Frisbee that every player is expected to put integrity and fair play above their desire to win. <laughs> And for about 50 years, the community has done a pretty darn good job of upholding that standard. Now, there are exceptions. There are people who, for example, will foul somebody and then deny that they fouled them. There are people who, who land out of bounds and call themselves inbounds. These are call, the kind of calls you're expected to make yourself on the honor system in the game. But it's amazing how the community expectation that you put integrity and fair play ahead of the desire to win, how much that does to improve um, human ethics. Mm. When everybody on the field out there is just watched you catch that disc right near the line and you have to make the decision to call yourself in or out, you know everybody. You mean Maybe you'll get the win if you call yourself inbounds, but you also know that other people are going to think differently of you if you, if you cheat. And I think ultimate players have done a pretty good job on the whole in absorbing that ethos and cherishing it and learning from it. You can learn a lot about integrity by playing the game. Yeah. It's so interesting because there are other games that, well, actually pretty much every other sport I can think of has cemented the opposite norm where you are you're like in in basketball or you know okay so in in baseball every time the the pitcher throws a pitch that's just to the right of the plate and the catcher just pulls it in at the last second to make it look like it hit the corner no catcher is ever going to be judged for doing that it's actually a, a a kind of subtle dishonesty that is now it's just part of the game it's a norm of the game you know like in, in soccer these people flop and fake a knee injury to, to get the red card or whatever. And no one, no one actually judges the guy that did it because everyone else is doing it. And I think the reason that happens is that when you take moral responsibility off of the players and put it onto referees, you're basically giving the players license mm-hmm. to, to do their best to exploit the rules to, mm-hmm. or to be dishonest. Somebody else will take care of fairness. 
so I can do everything I can to win. But life ain't like that. We actually, there are, I don't think there are ultimate referees in the game of life. I think that in the end, it's up to us to embody integrity and fair play in everything we do. And playing a game that forces you to be both a contestant and a self-referee yourself imparts life lessons. I, I founded a, a sports camp for kids about 10 years ago, and about a th- several thousand kids came through my camp and learned about this spirit of the game ethic in the sport of ultimate Frisbee. And every day we'd send the kids home with a story about, with some ideas about how they could apply this ethic of sportsmanship in their larger lives. And parents would come up to me afterwards and say, I don't know what you've done to my kid, but thank you. Thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. And it was all this beautiful game with played with a Frisbee and this ethic of sportsmanship. And I think if we did that in other walks of life, we might discover that we can transform the world. Yeah. It's a great sentiment. And it occurs to me that I actually ultimate frisbee may be the the sport that's taken this to the most pro-social and beneficial extreme. Mm-hmm. But pickup basketball has a similar culture of calling your own fouls and never wanting to get a reputation for calling too many fouls because then you're perceived as selfish and kind of a sore loser. Mm -hmm. But you know, when everyone can see that you've just been fouled, you want to be the person that calls it before the shot, before you know whether the shot goes in, there is a culture of judgment and integrity that, that people follow and that more or less works for, for its purposes. So that's a nice example. One I was less familiar with, but imagine a, a young person who basically just lives in the world to pick up basketball and basically absorbs that ethic and comes to embody it. And in their decisions, you know, a certain degree of integrity and fair mindedness just becomes natural and becomes second nature. And then this person gets, I don't know, drafted into the NBA. And all of a sudden they're in a world where referees um, are the ones maintaining responsible for maintaining fairness. And so now you do everything you can to bend the rules in your team's favor. Over time, what does that do to a person? Right. And, and think about how when a society creates a, a judicial system and a police force and says those guys are responsible for maintaining fairness and, and uh, justice, a whole bunch of people will say, oh, well, I, I guess I don't have to do it myself. That's their job. And so they stop holding themselves to, to high moral standards. I'm not saying we should do away with justice systems and police forces necessarily, but it's worth thinking about um, whether we can keep some of the responsibility for self-governance on people and rather than displace it onto authority figures that often abuse those power as in the stop and frisk cases. Yeah, I guess the the similarity between all of these communities where people self-police in a healthy way are that they're small and everyone is more or less on a first name basis with everyone else. You know, you pay a reputational cost for being an asshole with people that you're going to see again and again and again, as opposed to a referee who is, or, or a judge that is just totally outside of your community. And um, I mean, I, I think this is one of the challenges 
not often talked about in America, which is that we are such a huge nation. We are such, we, we are a bigger nation. We compare ourselves sometimes to nations one-tenth our size or, or one-twentieth, one-thirtieth our size. Um, and it might seem like there's no, there's no difference materially between 30 million and 300 million, but I actually, I do think there is a difference in that the, the less local something feels, the, the more difficult it is to have these, to have our culture look like the culture of ultimate Frisbee. Um, the more we we're sort of forced to rely on these independent arbiters and systems that yeah don't feel quite as good, but yep, that, that sounds right to me um, for sure. And one very vivid contrast here is between the sort of hunter gatherer lifestyle that scientists presume our distant ancestors lived in. And, and we now think scientists now think that we lived for most of human evolution in small tribes of, you know, less than 130, 150 people, basically a group of where you can know everybody and sort of keep a reputation rank rating for everybody else in, in, in the group. Um, in a group like that, you can rely on you know, goodwill to a high degree and self-governance to a high degree. And then when agriculture came along and created huge impersonal bureaucratic societies, you know, a lot of those same mechanisms of self-governance, it seemed important to replace those with, with impersonal justice systems, for example. And I think that that has been both been necessary and also a two-edged sword, right? I think we've lost something important in that transformation. Yeah. So another part of your thesis is that you know, we're, we're all familiar, definitely every listener to this podcast is familiar with the notion of tribalism, the us, them thinking, the way in which we have a tendency to be less critical of ideas that come from within our, our self-identified tribe, whether that is a racial tribe, a political tribe, a national tribe could even be the tribe of your sports team. There's a million different ways that, that humanity can be sliced into tribes. But we just have this tendency to not treat our tribe and our rival tribes equally when it comes to how much evidence we need to believe something and a, a whole host of other, you know, giving the benefit of the doubt. And so, so you say in the book, though, that tribalism is not sufficient to explain the, the kind of unreason and the, the kind of spread of mind viruses that you are worried about. It's not the only factor and is, is perhaps sometimes sold as the only factor. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I don't think there's any doubt that the human brain is deeply tribal in its architecture and that left to ourselves, our thinking can become warped by, by tribal loyalties. And I mean, the evidence for this is now overwhelming. And, and part of what that means is that we actually need to take deliberate steps to mitigate the kind of biases that result. And what I object to is the move from, oh, 
these tribal biases seem to be innate. Therefore, there's no helping it. We just have to live with our tribalism, as opposed to actually teaching people to modulate and reduce their their biases through, say, dialogues with people who have other points of view and that expand your point of view because they present you with a different and compelling way of looking at the world. So when you take time, so I, I look, I've lived a privileged life and managed to spend most of it in, in institutions of higher education. And for about 30 years, I've had a chance to meet with people who have remarkably different points of view, just to talk through our differences day in and day out. So I know you can have constructive conversations between pro-life and pro-choice people on the abortion issue. I know you can have constructive conversations between critical race theorists and detractors of critical race theory. And when people take the time to have these conversations and do it in the right spirit, admit it changes them. It changes them in ways that makes their thinking less tribal, less parochial, less narrow and petty and insular and unfair. I think we have a moral obligation to learn how to think fairly and how to think fairly. How would you imagine your worldview clashing with another worldview in dialogue and imagine trying to embody both trying to represent your point of view, your worldview, while also embodying that ethic of sportsmanship and fair play that I talked about in Ultimate Frisbee. What would it be like to handle yourself in conversation in a way where you stand up for your convictions, but also let other people persuade you because that's the fair and honorable thing to do when they have a good point? Yeah, well, there's a few things you have to do, I think. One is you have to share the conversational space. You have to be a person that's okay with something like 50-50 airtime or something close to that as opposed to 90-10. And, and there are certain people that either through lack of self-awareness or just whatever it is, have no concept that a conversation that's just like one person constantly interrupting the other and talking louder yeah. is, is a non-starter for, for like a real dialogue. That's right. So that's one thing. And another thing is you have to be open to the idea that you might be wrong, right? Like the, the, whatever the belief is, it can't be so deeply a part of your identity that you would have to give up who you were to stop believing it. Beautiful. And so it, you know, you have to be separate from the belief somehow. Yeah. And that's one of the uh, theses of the book. So it turns out that human tribalism can rally around shared ideas or shared beliefs. So you, you, you can rally around a flag. You can rally around uh, people who have the same skin color you do. I don't know. You can rally around a political party, but you can also just rally around an idea or a, or a set of beliefs. Many religions actually have this form. The problem is it, it, when those beliefs become central to your identity, then challenges to those beliefs are perceived as a threat to who you are. They feel like a threat and your mind overreacts to the threat by generating, by, by rejecting things that it might actually learn from. I'll give you an example. I was raised in a family that practically worshiped Martin Luther King. Years later, 
I learned or I heard that Martin Luther King had been unfaithful to his wife. When I first heard this, I was like, no way, not a man like Martin Luther King. He wouldn't do that. And I actually, my mind manufactured the following reason. That must be a part of a smear campaign that J. Edgar Hoover perpetrated when he was surveilling Martin Luther King. That seemed to me so plausible because I wanted desperately to hang on to this idea that Martin Luther King- The thing is, it's actually not implausible. The FBI did do that sort, those sorts of things. So it's not, it's superficially plausible. Right. It had a certain, it, it, it tied in with other things I knew about Hoover's FBI. COINTELPRO right. Co- and so forth. Right. But it turns out that Martin Luther King was in fact unfaithful to his wife. And I actually had, eventually had to acknowledge that to become a wiser and more nuanced, mm-hmm. to, to deepen my understanding of reality. And yeah, Martin Luther King was an amazing moral exemplar on certain dimensions, but it turns out he wasn't on all dimensions. But letting go of that view of him as, as a practice, as a, as a saint was hard for me. And it, I wasn't able to think clearly and fairly about it until years later. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. And I think we, everyone listening to this probably has, whether it's Martin Luther King or someone else, you know, Michael Jackson or any, any number of people struggles with this, this kind of thing. We hate to hear that our heroes are flawed, right? Yes, no doubt. Because it just, it seems to, it, it punctures a kind of idealism that we have. Like we, we want to look up to people that we, you know, we need them to be perfect for, for our sake. Their being perfect does something psychologically for us. That's a and nice so we, we just, we cling to this. And then when they turn out inevitably to be human, yeah, you know, it, it takes away whatever, whatever it was doing for us. It's, it's no longer doing for us, right? We feel lost adrift in the world. And maybe I'm no more special than Martin Luther King. And maybe, you know, if he's a human, I'm a human, we're all just humans. There's no, there are no saints or perfect people to look up to. We're all just kind of chaotically trying to navigate a, a universe that is uncaring. That's a very, very difficult thought to actually accept. We want to believe certain things are perfect and pure so that we can pursue them with complete wholeheartedness, right? Or so that we can try to embody them. So if, you, if you're raised Christian and you're taught that Jesus was a moral exemplar, then it's very hard to hear criticisms of, of Christianity and Judaism. If you're, you know, you're raised conservative, and somebody tries to point out that your conservatism is actually, I don't know, cruel in some ways, you're very likely to have a hard time hearing it because it's, I'm not cruel. I'm a conservative and I'm not cruel. So you must be wrong. Right. So um, the, I think the takeaway here is that it's really important not to hitch your identity to beliefs of any kind, because then you, you risk becoming closed-minded about those beliefs and related matters. It's far better to hitch your identity to the ethic of honest inquiry, to the, the concept of on, honest inquiry, to the concept of free inquiry. Here, I'm looking at your website here, Coleman, and you say uh, you champion free speech, free thought, and open debate, values that you believe play a pivotal role in liberal society. Beautiful statement. And what I love about that way of defining yourself 
is that it will never compromise your open-mindedness. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll be a, if you stick with this philosophy, you'll be a lifelong learner. And I right. heartily approve. I, I think, I think we should raise every child to identify with honest inquiry and honest dialogue and teach them to learn and adjust their worldviews based on the information they encounter. Yeah, absolutely. The, I've mentioned this essay, I think, in, in my episode with Julia Galef mm. um, many months ago. This essay called Keep Your Identity Small, I think by, by Paul Graham is his name. Mm. And, I'm um, familiar with that, but that sounds like, a, like good advice. It's just a very short, it's basically just a little blog post. But it's, it's um, you know, the idea is just the more labels you add to your identity, the more opportunities for bias and defensive instincts you're, you're, you're adding, right? Like if you, if, if I identified as a liberal or a conservative and I just, I really thought of myself as either one of those categories, I would immediately be subject to a host of loyalty tests that would not help me think clearly. Well, and, and, and but I think there's two sides to this coin too. The idea of maintaining open-mindedness is so central to what I think it's important to learn and, and embody in this world. And every year when, as the presidential election approaches and I'm, gripped by fears of what happens if the other guy's candidate wins the white house. I start to embrace my own liberal identity more strongly because it motivates me to get out there and knock on doors and pass and encourage other people to vote. Right. So when, when your tribe feels threatened and feel like a good idea to identify more strongly with that tribe so that you can fight back, together more with greater solidarity and yet it can blind you and close your thinking. I think both of those things are true. Yeah. I think uh, you, you mentioned in the book, there's some, some saying about philosophers who, you know, can, can fall into the trap of needing everything to be so precise that you fail to act. You wait too long to act. Mm. Right. And then the, the opposite mistake of acting before you figured out whether your actions are worthwhile. Yeah. Imagine being so open-minded that you never, that you never stand for anything. Right. In your life. Right. I actually think you can be resolutely open-minded about everything and also have the courage of your convictions. Although that's a tricky thing to do because it looks like the moment you become convinced of something that you have to become closed-minded about it. I think that's wrong. You can become convinced and, and remain open to the possibility that you need to revise that view. And to, if you want to feel as though you stood for something in this life, you need the courage of your convictions. So a big, my philosophical project is all about how do we have the courage of our convictions and act to make the world a better place without becoming dogmatic and closed-minded. And that's basically ultimately what the book is about. All right. Well, on that note, I, I'll bring this discussion to a close, but it's been a pleasure. I really recommend people pick up the book. Um, it's called Mental Immunity. 
I'll, I'll share the subtitle as well. Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. And thanks for endorsing it. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure to have you. Hopefully I'll have you uh, back again one day. I'd, li- I'd like that, Coleman. It's, I feel like I've uh, discovered a kindred spirit here and I uh, hope we'll stay in touch. Absolutely. All, All right. right. Take care. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.